Hello, and welcome to the BS with Friends podcast, a subsidiary of the Bader and Simon Gallery, scheduled to open in Cincinnati, Ohio in 2024. I'm your host, Tamara White, founder and board president of Bader and Simon. In this podcast, we will discuss art, social justice, and well, basic BS with friends. Our approach is a bit lighter and irreverent and is a warning for those with young ones nearby. There is a chance that colorful language will be used from time to time. The format will include five questions for our guests that are a bit more serious, and each interview will end with the same five fun questions. Thank you for joining us and enjoy the episode. Michael Radokas is an art advisor and senior director at Schwartzman and. He was a founding staff member and director at Art Agency Partners, where he worked for prominent collectors and institutions. While working for AAP, Michael grew the reach of the firm's advisory projects worldwide, developed new initiatives and partnerships, and expanded the scope of services AAP could provide its collectors. In addition to his work advising collectors, he also leads the philanthropic advisory arm of Schwartzman and... Welcome, and thank you for being here. So in addition to the work that you have done with Schwartzman and, you also, I have to admit that you are also my art advisor and have assisted me in creating what I think is a rather amazing collection that focuses on diverse topics and underrepresented artists and So along with what you've done to assist me, I'm curious what your philosophy of collecting is. Thank you for the introduction, Tammy. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you and I started working together, it was, you know, it was, I don't know, almost a year maybe before I kind of understood from you what your direction in collecting was. And so in my mind, you went from, you know, a regular collector whose taste I was trying to understand to someone who had clear and specific vision. And there's a difference for me between working with someone who's still figuring out what they're looking to do and someone who already knows it. It's a different project. And I think it can be more fun because there's a clear directive of what we're looking for. In terms of my philosophy of collecting, I mean, apropos of the difference between one and the other, I think that there just are a lot of a lot of different ways of collecting and different kind of interests that people have. So I always say that you should just buy what you love. You know, if what motivates you to collect is the desire to understand more about history, the contemporary world, beauty, then there are tons of objects out there that will meet each of these needs. And just to follow up on what you were saying, for me, it was a bit of a slow burn. As you know, I I called you up and said I was interested in buying a few pieces And you had made the comment that most people turn into collectors and buy more than one piece. And I was certain that that was not going to be me. And it was, has completely become me. And I will say that even though the subject matter of my collection is a little more thought provoking and intense, it is more fun to have a focus because things make sense as, as we're building the collection. And so to go on my next question, um, I feel like I started off with a small collection and I'm moving it more to this mid-sized collection. And what would be your advice for someone that's beginning 
a smaller midsize collection? Well, to com- I mean, to comment quickly on on your focus, social justice, um, mass incarceration, the carceral system, it's, you know, some advice that I would give to someone is, is um, if you are able to focus your collection in that way, there are a lot of opportunities out there. You know, we've seen that we've had access to things that are only being sold to museums. And uh, we've gotten a lot of rare opportunities to acquire work that aren't available to everyone. So that's been super exciting. You know, in general, I would say people that are starting small and mid-sized collections that before, you know, you begin buying, you should see as much art in person as you can. Go to gallery shows, museum shows, meet artists, visit other collections if you're able to. Go see the auction previews. You know, everything from the old masters to the contemporary. Yeah, and just speak to people that you know in your life that are that are knowledgeable about art and collecting. That will be huge, hugely help, helpful as you begin your collecting endeavor. I always say to new collectors that they should consider a yearly budget. Not everybody sticks to their budget, and that's fine. But if you have a number in mind... Hard. Yeah. <laughs> If you have a number in mind, I think that there it, it can make some larger p- purchases easier to do across the year. So you could say, you know, you could take 50% of your budget and say, I want to acquire two major works with half of my budget. So when you get that piece that normally you would look at the price tag and say, that's too much for me, you could look at it within the context of a budget and say, okay, I can do this. You know, and then the, the rest of the 50% you can you can spend on, you know, younger or emerging artists that that uh, you know, and you can collect more with more with that money. Yeah, and I will say for myself, you know, as you know, I always sort of have an idea of what I want to spend, but there are times where it really makes you think and consider when something comes on that there are sometimes just pieces that are worth pushing that boundary if you're able to do it. And it really, for me, it's made me really appreciate those pieces that I've made that decision to push the boundary and feel like it was a real opportunity. Um, Absolutely. Acquire those. Regarding the artists, you know, and, and you mentioned we've, we've met a number of artists that are formerly incarcerated. There are some that have less of a traditional background And so I'm curious what you think is the single greatest impediment that artists are facing today. It's a great question. I think, you know, our firm in the last few years has has begun working as advisors to artists, both young and emerging, mid-career, established artists, as well as artists' estates. And what we've learned is not so surprising, but that every artist has different needs, whether that is having greater representation in European museums or American museums or having a better system for documenting and archiving to, you know, there are just so many other other needs, you know, that, that any artist might have. So, I mean, that. And then I think, you know, in general, I think a more a more general 
impediment really is time. I think that artists need time in every aspect of their careers to be in their studio, to think, to travel and, you know, allow themselves some time off. And I think that the speed at which we're operating sometimes these days, not only for artists, but is, um, is too fast. And so I don't know if that's an inclusive answer to your question. (laughs) Well, it's something that I've thought about because as I mentioned, a lot of the art that I have acquired is by formerly incarcerated artists and the work is amazing. It also seems to be the hot ticket right now. And so I have thought about what happens to these artists in two years or five years or 10 years when this topic is suddenly not the end thing. And I think that most of them have the ability and the skills, but I think it goes to what you're saying of having more time in the studio so that they can sort of expand their craft beyond what they're doing right now. Yeah. Time and, and which takes money, you know, I mean, to be, to, to be able to, um, you know, have a studio practice, one really needs to, needs to have a source of income, you know, and I will also say that with the artists, the formerly incarcerated artists, I mean, this is, their achievement within the field of contemporary art right now is, I mean, it's spectacular. You know, when you look at how challenging it is in general to become an artist who is able to support their career with the art that they make, think about starting that from a disadvantaged place. Yeah, I think that's what has made a lot of their work so incredible. You know, somebody like Jesse Crimes, who created this work from the inside and brought it to the outside and has now expanded on it is, you know, it's kind of genius, you know? And so my collection, I'm sort of buying art with this focus. It's being used. I sort of refer to it as a form of visual activism in some ways. And so I'm curious your thought on art being used as activism. Yeah, I tend to focus less on like governmental policy and, you know, popular culture representations of how art creates change when used as a form of activism. And I and I focus more on the creative processes that have emerged as a result of artists focus on activism. So I think of great the great community work that someone like Titus Kafar has done at Next Haven or the Artist Collective for Freedoms, which Hank Willis Thomas is the founding member. And I also look at the great potential that you have in creating, you know, your gallery and collection that will be in Cincinnati. Yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised at, you know, we're just sort of getting started doing online programming and with the idea that the gallery will open in 2024. And I've really been amazed at the response and the enthusiasm from people both in Cincinnati and New York and other places of having an interest in, in the space and what I'm doing. We have, we had a conversation at some point, I can't remember when, but you know, we, I was asking you why Cincinnati and you said, you know, you're someone that, that lives between New York and Berkeley, California. And so opening I was curious to know why why you had chosen Cincinnati, but one of the interesting things that you told me was that you said, you know, California and New York are the last places that need a space like this. And I totally agreed with you. It made so much sense to bring this way of seeing 
to a community that that needed it and didn't have someone looking at issues like this or many different people looking at issues like this. Yeah, that that tends to be the first question when I tell people what I'm doing. Almost always the first question is, why Cincinnati? And I will say when I started doing this and got this idea, there's an artist in Cincinnati, G. Horton, and I called him and just sort of wanted to pick his brain. And I said, do you think this is a good idea? Does this this seem like there's a need? And he unequivocally said, yes, this is great. And I think, you know, and there are some other spaces that are doing some of this, but more is better. I think it just creates more of a dialogue and more interest in it, the more spaces that are doing this. And so the other question I have for you is what has been your most exciting or memorable moment as an advisor? Well, I love what I do. I will say that I often I often get to do fun things in my job. One of which is going, you know, being in museums or or cultural institutions or private collections when, you know, nobody else or very few people are around. Every time I'm in a museum with one or two other people, I look around and I think I'm very, very lucky. But if I'm trying to think of one specific thing that that I could characterize as the most memorable art, art experience or experience as an advisor was I was in Richard Prince's studio in Harlem and I got to drive his Mustang. I think it was a 69 Mustang, which he used to make many of his artworks, the car hoods. And, you know, it's he made a number of paintings with this car in it as well. So that was, I felt pretty cool when I was in that car. But maybe that's mostly because it was a Mustang. I don't know. Most people would be happy just to be in a studio, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I think I've mentioned before, for me, getting to be in LA with you and some of your colleagues and look at art and sort of go going gallery hopping. I felt like I was a fly on the wall to your life in a way that when you walk into a space, Everybody paid attention and was it was like getting a private tour of these spaces, which was remarkable. And and just the time and attention that it, a lot of the gallerists would take with you and in, in introducing new artists and explaining the work. It was interesting and amazing. And I, I can see why you like your job. <laughs> well, we're also lucky people that are involved in art. I mean, you too. That are that, that there tend to be a lot of interesting people in the art world. And so thankfully, because we have to travel around the world with these people all year and then do it again the next year. So it's nice to be in the company of other interesting and interested people. Yeah, that's true. I think the festivals show that, right? The art fairs, you see that. I mean, the art fairs in themselves could be this amazing fashion show. Just you see the diversity and the interest and the creativity of people just walking through these spaces. So now we get to do the fun questions. Who is your dream dinner guest or guests, dead or alive? You can have as many or as few as you want. I think I would choose Andy Warhol within the context of this art discussion. I think I would say I would like to be invited to a dinner party that he had. So I imagine that there would be a whole group of other interesting people there as well. But just to witness him in an environment like that, I think would be remarkable. That's a Who good would point. yours be? 
<laughs> it actually might be more interesting to go to Andy Warhol's dinner party than invite him to your own. <laughs> and then I don't have to cook. So it's, yeah. it's a win-win. Well, for mine, I wouldn't have to cook either because Anthony Bourdain would always All be right. on the list. I think Gloria Steinem. And then recently I added another person I had thought about, Harry Belafonte. Oh, wow. He had a friend that lived in my apartment building in New York. And I was in the elevator one day and this couple said, oh, can you hold the elevator? And I held it. And it was Harry Belafonte and his wife. And I just... <laughs> I don't get starstruck, but I was completely starstruck. And it's sort of one of these moments. And then when he got off the elevator, he turned around and said, thanks, baby. And my daughter, <laughs> we're going to put that on your tombstone because I was so Harry <laughs> Belafonte. So he it. would have to be at my it. dinner party. What song is the soundtrack of your life? Well, I could name a lot. I do love music different songs, but I realized I was listening this morning that I think that I'm going to expose now that I, I'm a low-key Taylor Swift fan, and I like almost all of her music, so <laughs> so you any of her songs. Tickets? What's that? No, I didn't I didn't get tickets. Joking, it's like winning the lottery <laughs> if you got tickets. For sure, for sure. Flat or sparkling? I am fine with either. Usually if I crave something, it's sparkling. But if I'm not in, you know, if I haven't been walking around a city for, you know, hours, I'm, I'm fine with flat. Okay. What social justice cause is most meaningful to you at this moment? I think the one that's most present and meaningful to me right now is gun violence and gun reform laws. You know, just in January, which had just ended yesterday, I, there have been, you know, over 1,200 people in the U.S. have died from gun violence. And, you know, I think around 70 or more of those deaths were related to mass shootings. So it's just, if it hadn't reached a, you know, a tipping point years ago, we're, we're certainly in, you know, dire straits as it relates to, to gun violence in this country. I agree. And actually, as we're doing the online programming for the website, we're doing exhibitions online until the physical space opens. The next exhibition that we're going to do online is going to be around gun control. Artists that are focusing on it, just resources, ways to donate, because it does just feel like the one thing that we really need to, that and police brutality would be, yeah. you know, the thoughts that I have. The last fun question. Some might not find fun, but who is your least favorite Supreme Court justice? Well, there are a couple of bad apples in that, <laughs> in, that, in that court, but I think my least favorite would probably have to be Brett Kavanaugh. I happened to watch all of his confirmation hearings in Congress, you know, a few years ago. And, and he just, I mean, aside from some of his views and where he stands on the court, he just, you know, he really rubbed me the wrong way. He, the way that he was acting kind of like a big baby. Yeah. I think he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, but on that note, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. And thank, thank you, you for, for having me. An amazing art collection. And just a note to people listening for the online exhibit, this period, you can go on the Bader and Simon website and see we're highlighting the permanent collection 
on the website right now with the work that we've been sort of curating into this theme. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to reach out and let us know your preference for flat or sparkling or anything else you'd like to share, you can find us on Instagram at Bader and Simon Gallery or on our website, baderandsimon.com, where you will find information about current exhibitions and programming. Until next time, have a fabulously artistic day.